We appreciate your attendance here this morning, and I uh, appreciate everyone who was able to uh, attend the movie night and the chili cook-off that we had yesterday. I know that uh, several of you were there for that, and uh, it seemed like everybody had a, a really good time, and I'm, I appreciate Joe Leal for coming up with that idea for the chili cook-off, and uh, to, to Philip for all the work that he uh, has put in on all of those movie nights, and uh, Everyone who showed up and cooked, now Shannon won, it was, was already said, and so that wins him not only bragging rights, but the responsibility to give free chili-making lessons to anyone who comes and asks him. Uh, so if you need to learn how to improve your chili, go talk to Shannon. But at any rate, I sampled three or four of them, and they were, they were all good in their own way, and I, I know that everybody had a good time being together and eating together and, and talking with one another. And that really is a good sort of lead-in to what we want to think about or, or talk about today. And that is the Lord's Supper. Thomas Campbell was a Presbyterian minister, born in Ireland, educated in Scotland at the University of Glasgow. And when our story begins, he was serving a church in Ireland. But over time, he became dissatisfied with the divisiveness of his denomination. I said that he was a Presbyterian, but more accurately, he was an old light anti-burger seceder Presbyterian. Now, if that sounds like a mouthful, it's because each and every one of those modifiers reflected a, a previous doctrinal disagreement. And in contrast to that spirit, there was a reform movement of independent churches emerging in Scotland that had swept into Ireland and Thomas became so influenced by those that before long he became unwelcome in Ireland. And so at age 45, Thomas Campbell moved to America in May of 1807. And it just so happened that the synod for his seceder Presbyterian church was meeting in Philadelphia. So he went and he met with them and presented his credentials as an ordained minister. And they assigned him to go and to preach in southwestern Pennsylvania. And he was immediately a respected minister there in Washington County. And yet, after only six months, charges were brought against him, resulting in a seemingly endless series of trials and finally his renouncement of his denomination. Why? What happened? One of Thomas's responsibilities was to administer the Lord's Supper to seceder Presbyterians that were in his territory. Now, it's hard for us to imagine today, we think of the frontier and we think about it being way out west, you know, what we've seen in John Wayne movies. But in 1807, southwestern Pennsylvania was on the frontier. And Thomas was distressed to find that there were some Presbyterians out there in his community who had not had communion for years. Now, when I say Presbyterians, I'm talking about Presbyterians in general, not just old light anti-burgers of cedar Presbyterians. But because of their outlook, his denomination didn't want to give communion to those others. On the other hand, Thomas had compassion on these people. He was racked with guilt about what to do. Ultimately, he decided to offer it freely. He preached a sermon in which he said that there ought not to be such divisions in Christendom and that anyone who considered themselves a Christian should be able to come and eat the Lord's Supper. 
And for that, he was cast out as a heretic. At almost exactly the same time, Thomas's family was trying to make their way to America to join him. They left in a ship bound for America, but it was shipwrecked off the coast of Scotland, and it was too late in the year for them to try to make the journey again. And that gave Thomas's son, Alexander, then 20 years old, the opportunity to enroll at the University of Glasgow. And he resolved to become a minister himself. And this was a formative time for him because he was exposed directly to those same reforming ideas that I was talking about that his father had been exposed to. Well, just like his father, in thinking about primitive Christianity, he started to examine the claims of the seceder Presbyterian church. And the turning point for him came at a communion service. Now, the seceders practiced closed communion, obviously. That is, that they only allowed those who they considered to be worthy to eat the Lord's Supper. And the way that you normally proved that you were worthy is you had a metal token, basically a ticket of admission to go and to take communion. Well, Thomas, or uh, Alexander, came to Scotland without any letters of recommendation, and so he had to go and sit for an examination before the elders, and he passed. He got his token. But the more he thought about it, the more his conscience was bothered. And so when he went to the actual semi-annual communion festival they had, when they passed the plate around for you to put your token in there to prove you could take it, he threw his aside. He didn't partake of the bread and the cup, and he got up and he left the building. In thinking about those two stories, I'm struck by the fact that these two men, Thomas and Alexander Campbell, men who would become leaders of the churches of Christ early on in this country, independently reached the same conclusion to return to the roots of Christianity, to restoration, because of the high view they had of the Lord's Supper. And that's fitting. Because when we look at the New Testament, it seems that this is the central act of worship in the assemblies of the early church. And yet I look at the way we undertake it, and I think it's one of the ones we give the least amount of attention to. We rush through it in haphazard fashion, just trying to pass things around as quickly as we possibly can sometimes. So as we begin thinking about what we do and why we do it, I want us to think about the Lord's Supper for a few minutes together this morning. Consider just how enduring this simple yet profound meal has been. For 20 centuries now, over 20 centuries, whenever Christians have met together, they've eaten the Lord's Supper. It's just the same today as it was in the first century. And that's true not only here, but it's true for Christians all over the world. Think about any Lord's Day today. Hundreds of thousands of Christians all over the world are eating the Lord's Supper. Already this Lord's Day in the Far East, in India, in the Middle East, in Europe, in Africa, on the East Coast of the Americas, hundreds of thousands have preceded us in eating the Lord's Supper. And there are some others who are going to eat it a little bit later on this morning. Every Sunday, Christians all over the world gather around the Lord's table. 
I imagine that for most of us, we can think of, of meals as being some of the most meaningful events in our lives in different ways. You think about family meals that you've had when you gather around the table at, at Christmas or at Thanksgiving. You can probably all think back to occasions, maybe particularly involving relatives that aren't with us anymore. Those are precious to us. Or maybe sometimes meals are memorable because of the food we eat. Maybe it's something that you never tried before. Or maybe it's a really great meal you can look back on. Or maybe they're memorable because of the places that we're eating. I, I can think of particular restaurants I've eaten in on vacations or on my travels at different points. But the most important meal we'll eat, any of us, week in and week out, is this simple memorial of the Lord's Supper. And it's, it's supremely important because of what it signifies. This was the central act in the worship assembly for the first century church. And to say it was the central act is not the same thing as saying it was the most important act. But I do want you to consider this. The Lord's Supper is the only aspect of the worship assembly that you wouldn't find in the Jewish synagogue. Everything else had a comparison there. They sang psalms. They offered up prayers to God. They read from the scriptures. They expounded on what they read. They gave alms. But the Lord's Supper is unique. It doesn't have any sort of analog in Jewish synagogue worship. And so there were meetings specifically to eat the Lord's Supper, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The early Christians met together on the first day of the week to eat the Lord's Supper, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. And this is so important because it expresses the central realities of what it means to be a Christian. This is commemorating what calls the church into existence. There are four accounts of its institution in Scripture, one in the, each of the three synoptic Gospels, and the one from Matthew's Gospel was read just a few moments ago. But I want us also to read Paul's account in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because I'm going to refer to some concepts that he raises here as we go throughout the rest of the lesson. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Paul expounds on this some. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Many of the important concepts associated with this act are related to the terminology that we see used, whether it's in the New Testament or whether it's in the early church. And I want us to, to think about some of those terms now and, and consider what they revealed to us about the purpose of this meal. Uh, the first term is Eucharist. Now, that's one that we're maybe not that familiar with. You might have heard it. But on the other hand, we don't use it. And the reason we don't use that is because it's actually not found in Scripture as a, a noun. 
But on the other hand, this word comes from the Greek verb eucharisteo. That means to give thanks. And we do find that in all four accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave thanks for the bread. Jesus gave thanks for the cup. That's what this word means, to give thanks. And this became the most common term in the early church when they referred to this act. It's an example of a part of something or the beginning of something coming to stand for the whole thing. And that's not that unusual, but think about the significance of what part they chose. The thanksgiving. This is the church's great moment of thanksgiving for what God has done in Christ. For the salvation that he offers, for the creation of the church. What could we be more thankful for, whether it's personally or whether it's collectively as a body of Christians? The second term is Lord's Supper. Now, that's the one that we most frequently use and is most frequently used in the majority of Protestant churches. Uh, Paul calls it that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Now, a meal, the Last Supper, was the occasion for instituting the Lord's Supper, so there's that connection. But what's more important is what it says about who this meal belongs to. It's the Lord's Supper, not our Supper, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, when people are trying to abuse it and use it for their own gratification. No, this isn't yours. This is peculiarly the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's table, not ours, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Lord prepares the table. He invites us. He presides over it. We're his guests. When we eat and when we drink, we're eating and we're drinking in his honor. Because this meal belongs to him. Then there's communion. That's another term that we often use, probably almost as much as we use Lord's Supper. And this is another term that we find used by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, You'll often see it, it's in verses 16 and 17. The Greek word there is translated sometimes as communion, sometimes as fellowship, as sharing, as uh, joint participation even. In both pagan religions and in Judaism, you know this if you've read anything about sacrifice in the Old Testament, sacrifices were often followed by a meal in which you ate the animal that had been sacrificed. Well, in the bread and in the cup, Christians are experiencing that sacrifice. We're sharing in the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. We're communing with him. But it's not only a communion with him. Think about Luke's favorite term for the Lord's Supper in the book of Acts, breaking bread. Now that's the term for just a meal in general, but he also uses it at points to refer to the Lord's Supper. That calls attention to this fellowship aspect too. But here we're talking about eating together with each other. The fellowship that we have not just with the Lord, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Table fellowship was full of these rich associations of closeness and sharing in the ancient world. You think about what I mentioned last night, getting together and how much everyone enjoyed eating together and visiting with one another. And there were many people who came just for that and and left before the movie started. That's fantastic. We get a glimpse of what we mean by this, and it was even more important in the ancient world. 
sharing this meal together indicates we're a community. More than that, we're a family. The way that we'd eat those special family meals at Christmas and Thanksgiving that we mentioned. The last term I want to mention here is memorial. This present experience of communion with Christ and communion with each other is based on a past historical event. And Paul's words, or Paul's record of Jesus' words in verse 24 and in verse 26, it contains it twice, do this in remembrance of me. That's so important that we often inscribe that on our communion tables, don't we? Well, another way to translate that is do this memorial of me. And we get an idea of just how significant that is when we understand Jewish practices, Jewish thought. Remember that the Lord's Supper was instituted at the Last Supper, and the Last Supper was a Passover meal. At Passover, the Jews remembered what God had done for them in bringing them up out of Egyptian bondage. But there was more than just remembering it as this distant event, foggy, far off in the past. The Mishnah, where the written records of what the rabbis taught are recorded. The Mishnah enjoined, in every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. You see, in other words, instead of just recalling the past, the past is brought into the present. It's made operative. It's made real for us. So by the same token, when we remember what Jesus has done, when we do this memorial of him, we're not just thinking about what he did way off on the cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus died for me. His body was broken for me. His blood was poured out for me. It's as if it's happening in the present when we eat the bread and when we drink the cup. I think we see pretty clearly the significance, the meaning, the, the importance, the, the purpose of this activity. And with all of that said, I want us to think just for a few minutes about what our response should be to that. How should our attitudes be shaped in thinking about the importance of the Lord's Supper? And it's been said before that when we eat the Lord's Supper, we need to look inward and outward, backward and forward, and upward. And I think that all those are true, and we see those come out in the passages we've mentioned. So first of all, we need to look inward. We must examine ourselves, Paul says. And Paul speaks of eating in an unworthy manner. That's why we need to examine ourselves, to make sure we don't eat in an unworthy manner. But I want you to notice here, he's talking about the manner of our eating. You see this even in the King James Version where he says, eating unworthily. That's an adverb. That refers to how you're doing the action, not your own personal worthiness. And there's a vast difference in eating in a worthy manner versus whether or not we personally are worthy to eat the Lord's Supper. As far as your own worthiness, you're not worthy. No one is worthy of God's grace, otherwise it wouldn't be grace. No one is worthy of what God has done in Christ. No one is worthy of what this privilege is to eat the Lord's Supper. We come to the table instead for that very reason. 
because we're not worthy, because we're needy, we're hungry after righteousness. We need that spiritual nourishment that can only be provided there. And in fact, when I have seen people in the past not eating because they feel that there's sin in their life and so they're not worthy, I, I appreciate their, their heart and the recognition that they have sin in your, their lives. But the flip side of that is you're saying when you do eat it, you are worthy to eat it this week. And ironically, there's nothing more unworthy than an attitude that says, I deserve to eat the Lord's Supper. No. That recognition that we are sinful, that we come to the table needy, self-examination will remind us of our weakness and our imperfection. And that's precisely the attitude we should have when we come to the table. We need to look outwardly also, secondly, to our brothers and sisters here in this room, but also then beyond that to the world. We talked about this meal as communion. The Lord's Supper is a community act, not just with the Lord. We don't just privately commune with him. It's with our brothers and sisters. We're all in this together. We're all eating here together. And so we must make every effort to come to the table in harmony with others in this family. If there's something amiss, something wrong, some contention that you have with a brother or sister here, get it right. Don't come to the table out of harmony with your family members. We should have loving thoughts for those we're united with. And then we look not just here, but we look beyond these walls. We're looking outward, realizing that we're proclaiming the Lord's death, Paul says. When we eat the bread and when we drink the cup, we're preaching a sermon about who we are and why it is that we've gathered here. We should realize that we're preaching Jesus to the world at large. That's important. We also need to look backward, retrospectively, in memory. Do this in remembrance of me. Human beings forget. Some of us forget more than others, unfortunately. But in the Lord's Supper, we look back on the life of our Lord. We contemplate his sacrifice for us, his love for us. It's a time when we remember the very center of our religion. We remember what it means to be a Christian. These are the very events, his death, his resurrection, that create the church. But we look not only back, we also need to look forward prospectively. Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we not only remembered that the Lord died for our salvation, we look forward and we know one day he's coming again. And we're so confident in that that it's, it's as if it's made real now. In other words, not only is the past brought into the present, but in a very real sense, the future is brought into the present because that's how certain we are that one day Jesus is going to come back. And I think that this is one of the most overlooked aspects of our partaking of communion. We look back often, and it's usually sorrowful and somber and if we were only looking to the cross well that would make sense but on the other hand we're also looking forward we serve not a dead Jesus a dead man in a tomb we serve a living resurrected Lord and one day he's coming back that should temper that sorrow at what he did with with joy 
That doesn't mean it's not solemn, but we should be happy about that. The same way that we have those mixed emotions at the funeral of a loved one that we know we're going to see again. We're sad that they're gone, but we're happy they've reached their reward, and we know one day, one day we're going to be reunited. It's the same thing with the Lord's Supper. It looks to future glory. Shouldn't we be shaped by that expectation too? That's closely related to the last look, the upward look. We ought to feel a sense of thanksgiving. Remember what I said, this was the element that the early church emphasized most. That's where that term Eucharist comes from. But it's one that maybe we're not so good at expressing. When we relive the events of redemption, and when we look out at our brothers and sisters, We experience the joy of our common salvation. We look forward to the fact that the Lord's coming back one day. How can we fail not only to feel that joy, but to look up and to give thanks to God for everything that he's done for us? It brings joy. It brings peace. It brings thankful hearts. And so with all that said, as we close, I want us to just think about some ways we can improve the way that we eat the Lord's Supper, individually and collectively. You know, I think, hopefully, we can all see the significance of this event, why it's so important. And for the early church, it was the distinguishing characteristic of their Sunday assembly. And yet, oftentimes, we just zip through it without the reflection we should have on it. It's almost like it's an afterthought, a a ritual that we're just trying to do by rote. Uh, I've heard some call it a chip, a sip, and a tip, and that's the way that we treat it sometimes. Well, for us personally, we need to make sure that we're individually cognizant of those attitudes that we mentioned, all five of them. Think about those. We're pretty good at looking inwardly, inspecting ourselves. We're pretty good at looking backward. But what about the rest of that? What about looking forward? What about looking outward to our brothers and sisters and realizing that we're eating this together? What about looking upward and thanking God for all he's done for us in Christ? I would encourage all of us personally, and this is something only you can do individually, but I would encourage you to to think about these different attitudes instead of just focusing your attention on one or two of them the way that we typically do. That also means we need to take enough time for the Lord's Supper. I've known of some large congregations, I kid you not, where they brought in efficiency experts to improve the way that they go about doing it. That's because they've got hundreds or even thousands of people and multiple people passing trays, and so they've got a table at the front and at the back, and they have it all drawn up, complicated, like it's a football play with people going here, there, and yonder. Well, we don't have to worry about that so much here. And yet I still want to encourage you personally to not feel like you're in a rush. Don't feel like you need to get through this as quickly as possible, just breaking it off and passing it immediately. Focus on what you're doing. Make sure you take enough time for it. In terms of what we can do collectively, I've mentioned this before in some meetings uh, that we've had, and I'm just going to throw it out here publicly now, and I'd appreciate your feedback to me or or to the elders. I want to encourage us to include... uh, thoughtful comments and or readings every time that we partake of the Lord's Supper. I know that that's been done here some in the past at different times. I would encourage us to do that every time we eat it. 
doesn't have to be very long, you know, 90 seconds, two minutes maybe. But it helps to set this apart as something that is special in our worship, a, a high point of it. It helps all of us to focus and to see why it is we're doing what we're doing. That not only helps those of us who are here, and in fact, I think the best time we've had the Lord's Supper since I've been here was on our homecoming this past October when Daniel got up and did exactly what it is I'm talking about doing. But it also helps us proclaim the Lord's death to visitors in our services. You know, there, there are some people here who are unchurched. We have people like that who visit, who we just stand up here and start doing it. They don't maybe not know what we're doing. Or there are others who come from different religious backgrounds. Maybe they don't eat the Lord's Supper every week, and so they don't understand the significance of why we're doing what we're doing week by week the way we've talked about here. I would encourage us to, to think about including those. Whether we do or not, for those men who regularly lead prayers at the Lord's table, I would encourage you to give some real consistent reflection to what it is you're praying. I'm as guilty of this as anyone is. We all know in leading public prayer, we have a tendency sometimes to lapse into sort of uh, stock phrases and sayings that we use. And maybe we're more guilty of that at the Lord's table than anywhere else. I'm not saying that those sorts of prayers are unacceptable to God by any means, but I'm saying that let's all realize the seriousness of what we're doing and take the time to, to give some real attention and reflection to these prayers that we offer. You see, in the end, the Lord's Supper is central to the worship of the church because it proclaims the central facts of Christianity. And when we assemble here around the table, the Lord gives us spiritual strength. He cleanses us from all the evil that's crept into our lives. My hope and my prayer is that none of us will ever miss the great opportunity we have to eat this meal together and that we'll all appreciate one of these great privileges that we have in being his people, to come together and to eat the Lord's Supper together. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I want you to experience the great uplift that can come from eating the supper, knowing the joy that comes along with this secure knowledge that one day Jesus is coming back for you because he died for you. He rose from the grave for you. But to become part of his people and to have this privilege of eating the supper, you need to put your trust in him. You need to turn to God in repentance and you need to be buried with him in the waters of baptism. Have your sins washed away. Be part of this great communion of brothers and sisters, communion with your Lord. Whatever your need may be this morning, if you're subject to the Lord's invitation, we invite you to come now while we stand and while we sing.